Hello, hello, everyone. I am Dana. Um, as Maddie said, my husband and I are on eldership here, um, and I get to open up the book of Acts with you to this afternoon. Chris, who is our kind of lead pastor, him and Meryl planted this church. She's here. He is currently in Portugal. He has been in the UK with some of the churches we work with there. And then if you went on our Portugal trip last summer to the churches there, as many of you did, that was a year and a half ago now. Wow, it's wild, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so he's with the two church planners there. They're doing some training with their leaders. Um, and so I think it finishes over the next few days. So if you will be praying for him um, as he wraps up that time, and then he will be back with us next week. All right, let's dive in. I was going to, perfect. Thank you. Uh, we are in Acts chapter two. We're finishing up this week. Um, let me open my laptop. Tyler did most of this chapter last Sunday, and we get to kind of land it this evening. So let's read together. Acts 2, we're going to start in verse 42 and end in verse 47. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. Jesus came to earth and he lived, he taught, he did many signs and wonders. And then he was crucified and then he was resurrected, right? And after the resurrection, he spent 40 days with his followers and his disciples before his ascension to heaven, okay? Following his, leaving behind after his ascension, about 120 followers or disciples, okay? 120, so much less people than are in the room right now. I think we normally set out 150, 180 chairs. So, so you know, this portion of you are the followers of Jesus, okay? Now, Jesus himself wrote no letters. He left no documents behind. He didn't leave them kind of a treatise on, you know, theology or on ecclesiology. This is how to do church. What he left, his legacy, was his disciples. It was these 120 people. And these 120 people, filled with the truth of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would categorically transform, some might say disrupt, the entire known world. Historians say that in just about 200 years, they went from 120 followers to 30 million. 30 million people in the ancient world. No phones, no letters, no in the way we understand them, no social media, no way in which information travels fast. But in just over 200 years, 30 million people came to know the name of Jesus. How did it happen? How does the truth of Jesus manifest in such a compelling way that simply by word of mouth 
and the testament of their lives, so many people came to know Jesus. And I would suggest that quite simply, it's these few verses we read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so this evening, what I want us to do, or this afternoon, what time is it? I want us to impact this a little bit together. And honestly, my prayer is simple. It's that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be stirred, that our daily practices would be challenged and transformed by the revelation of these first believers that would become the church. Does that sound good? These six verses, one of the um, scholars I read this week said, these are perhaps the most compelling vision of Christian community that we have. Six verses that demonstrate this incredibly vivid picture of what marked these early believers, what defined them, what held them together, what inspired them to leave behind everything that they knew, everything that they understand for the sake of Jesus. And finally, what sustained them in the face of incredible cultural opposition and horrific persecution? From the time of Jesus, they were persecuted. And yet... 30 million people came to know Jesus within a very, just a couple generations. And so let's unpack it together. You with me? All right. Verse 42, this to me is arguably the most important truth in the whole passage right at the outset. And they devoted themselves. And they devoted themselves. Pause and think for a moment. Is there something or someone in your life that you are devoted to? Devotion is a passion word, right? It's a kind of, it's a consuming word. I think kind of like can't eat, can't sleep kind of thing. Devotion to me is this kind of beautiful marriage of desire and action. Devotion sort of holds both, right? You can't just have an idea about something to be devoted to it. It is to be steadfastly attentive to, or as Webster said, unremitting care to a person or thing. Unremitting, unrelenting. Have you ever felt that for anything? Follow up. Do you feel that about Christian community? Do you feel devoted to Christian community, because that's what these early believers embodied, devotion. They were steadfast. They were unremitting. They were unrelenting in their care and concern for one another and for the truth of Jesus. They gave their entire beings over to the way of Jesus. That's the only way that they were able to endure, that they were able to see such remarkable, uh, I think, transformation Devotion, desire, and action that led to a completely transformed existence. Are you devoted? So what were they devoted to? All right, well, firstly, let's, let's look at this together. Let's unpack it. What does it say? Firstly, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were steadfastly attentive to learning what it meant to live in the way of Jesus. Remember again, these were people that they didn't have the New Testament yet. The letters of Paul hadn't been written or the letter we read now of Luke. None of this was recorded. And so what they had were the apostles or those who had been with Jesus. 
There were the 120 who had been with Jesus. And so for many of these new believers, who what we understand historically were probably only temporarily in Jerusalem, right? What we see, what Tyler showed us last week, when 3,000 are added to their number, is that they're speaking all different languages. They're from all over the place. And so many of them had come into Jerusalem for one reason or another. They get saved. They meet Jesus. They encounter the Holy Spirit. But they're leaving Jerusalem. And they can't take anything with them. No Bible, no track, no kind of like, these are the main points. And so they sat under the teaching of the men and women who had been with Jesus. Look at verse 46. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This was a group of men and women who didn't have the luxury of apathy or lethargy when it came to the words of Jesus. They knew they had this very short window of time in which to understand what was the Messiah like? How did he live? What did he say? How did he view the world? What were his teaching to us? They had to glean all of it before they went out and by nature became missionaries to Asia and Egypt and Rome. And so what we see in this little moment is that they had a fervent desire to know, to understand they were hungry for the truth. And I think the question this really provoked in me as I sat with it this week was, am I devoted to learning about the way of Jesus? Do I take for granted the fact that I have this remarkable text in front of me that for thousands of years, well, maybe hundreds of years, the church would have been desperate for, to hold all the letters of Paul, to hold all the gospels, to hear from Mark and Luke and John and Matthew, what he was like, how he lived, how he practiced, how he prayed. Am I devoted to learning the way of Jesus? One of the kind of uh, good and bad things about the era in which we live is there is a lot of teaching. There is a lot of information. I can learn about almost anything instantly, right? Sue and I are very into um, Alone. If you ever watch that show, it's like a survival show. And all the time, we're like Googling things while we're watching these people live in the wilderness because I know nothing about living in the wilderness. And so I'm constantly kind of like, oh, how do you do this? What does this mean? What are they doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm taking in information. But the challenge for you and I as we learn or attempt to be followers of Jesus in the modern world is that, friends, we can take on so much other information that we almost have no capacity for the teaching of Jesus. We have no capacity for the way of Jesus because, you know, well, my, and I have a therapist, my therapist says this about this and my friend says this about this and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm consuming that information and I'm on social media and all of a sudden, the words of Jesus just seem very far off and very distant from the reality of my life. And so I think the call this evening is, can I be devoted to learning about the way of Jesus? Okay, secondly, what does it say? They devoted themselves to fellowship or also translated a shared life together. Essentially, they were devoted to community, to each other. 
This church was not a Sunday kind of a church in the way we understand it. This was not a kind of pop in twice a month kind of a church. These were a shared life kind of people. They truly existed together. Look at verse 44. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Nothing says devotion to one another more than meeting each other's needs. Desire and action. I wanna be there for you and I'm going to be there for you. I am going to meet your needs. What I found so compelling about this text is that none of the language here is duty language, right? I should, I guess I should go to the temple. All of the people felt manipulated to show up to church on a Sunday. All of, no, we don't see that there in case you were wondering. I'm not, that's not in the Bible, okay? Everyone's very quiet. It does not say manipulate people to go into church. Despite what you might've experienced, that is not in the text. They wanted to be there. They were so compelled by the reality of Jesus and by the community that he gave them, the legacy of these 120 people that they wanted to show up for one another. So it wasn't, you know, I guess I should eat my vegetables. I guess I should go to church. It was passion. It was desire. This truth of Jesus was so worthy, was so compelling, was so beautiful that all who believed were bonded together and held everything in common. So much so that they didn't just meet to learn, right? The teaching, they didn't just meet to pray or be in the temple, but they sold their stuff to care for one another. I want us to recognize that the way of Jesus here is an all-encompassing way of life. It was spiritual. It was mental, right? They were learning. They were praying. They were engaging. But it was also practical. Jesus calls us to love one another, not just in the idea, not just in our words, but in the very practice of our life. This was a financial thing. They were selling their possessions. My husband and I were talking about this the other day. You know, it's so, you read this and you're like, wow, that's so amazing. And then you're like, well, someone in my community can't meet rent. What do I do about that? What what, what do I do? What's my responsibility according to, to the text, their devotion for each other manifested in all of those ways. I felt so deeply, somewhere between challenged and excited by this when I sat with it this week, as I just let the reality seep in. How many of us grew up in church? Okay. How many of you experienced this? I'm not genuinely, the church is the bride of Christ and we do not bag on her or say bad things, okay? But what I want us to see is that for many of us church that we grew up in did the teaching part really well. They were giving us truth. They were equipping us. But what we see in the book of Acts and what we see from those who had been with Jesus was that this is not just about belief, This was not just about knowing the right things or believing the right things. 
This was a holistic together kind of reality. Jesus didn't just leave behind truth. He didn't just leave behind theology or belief. He left behind people, 120 people. And he said, with you, I will entrust the radical revelation of my salvation and my crucifixion and my resurrection. Go into all the world and share this, the way of Jesus. He left behind community. And friends, you and I need community. I need to know that people know my issues. Not everyone has to know, but there has to be someone who knows my weaknesses, my wrestles, my sin, my failures, and can hold space for them. People who know my needs and can meet them. That's the kind of community. And I feel so stirred at the prospect of building this way. If you were wondering what we're on about at Genesis, it's this. We want to build this kind of community. But friends, it won't come easy. It doesn't come cheap. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves for one another. Uh, I think his name, I put Rod, and I think that's wrong. Who's the guy who wrote Benedict Option? Oh, it is. I think, in my mind, his name was Ronald. And then I looked at my notes and I was like, that's not his name. Okay. This is, he writes the Benedict Option, but he says, the church can't just be the place you go on Sundays. It must become the, in, the center of your life. And I think there's some truth to that. Far too many of us have learned that church is the place where I hear teaching. I consume and adjust my belief. But I think we are being called to see the church as a place where we find community, where we are transformed by intimate relationships, where our needs are met both spiritual and practical. Anyone can go to a Christian event and feel stirred by a great speaker or go to a Christian concert and worship with really great musicians. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But friends, those are spiritual highs and they will not see you through the tough times. Spiritual highs were not enough to see the church through persecution. This would cost many of these believers their entire lives. And I can guarantee you that the sermon Peter gave just a few verses before was not enough to see them through the persecution they were about to face. When you feel depressed and lonely, a great speaker isn't going to meet you in that place. When your family is falling apart, or when you can't make rent, or when you need someone to pick you up from the hospital, or to provide support and encouragement, or to know your sin and to call you into holiness, great speakers won't do that. Famous worship leaders can't do that. You know who will? Christian community. People that you do life with, that know you, that see you, that can be the hands and feet of Jesus in your life, that can meet your needs. We had a moment this week in our table community where someone just honestly shared uh, that they were in financial need, that they didn't have enough. And I saw them less than 24 hours later. And by that point, someone had picked them up and taken them to buy groceries and three people had given them money to pay for bills. That is Christian community. That is what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We had a, a moment recently in the last few months where the city called us and one of the communities we work into, which is an elderly care facility, there was a woman there that was gonna get 
kicked out of her storage unit. And on a Tuesday night, the table communities that met said, we can cover that need. And they raised double the amount. So not only could they cover her storage unit, but they could cover her moving costs to her new care facility. That is the kingdom of God. That is Christian community. And that is what we want to build. But it requires devotion. It requires showing up. You have to be willing to give and you have to be willing to receive. You have to be willing to see your possessions as possibly the means by which your community's needs will be met. If you were here last week, we showed a video of Hannah Walzer who had surgery recently and she just spoke about the ways in which the community met her needs. Meals, money, walking her dog, taking her to the hospital, showing up at her home, caring for her while she was in bed rest. That is the community we are building. I was uh, preaching at a conference recently, some of you were at, and I read a portion of a very fascinating book called The Great Dechurching. And if you don't know, or maybe you've seen it, but not really kind of understood, in the last two decades alone, 40 million Americans are leaving the church. 40 million in two decades, so substantial. And these two researchers kind of set out to go, why? Why are people leaving the church? And what they found, interestingly, was not that people were leaving because of hurt predominantly, and obviously that did exist, or because people had issues with theology. Um, They were leaving for far more ordinary reasons. And I want to read a portion of the uh, book. I I have it all written up there. It's a little bit longer, so stick with me, okay? A much larger share of those who left church have done so for more banal reasons. The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to even live in community with other people. So what can the church do in such a context? In theory, the Christian church could be an antidote to all that. What is more needed in our times than a community marked by sincere love, sharing what they have with each according to their ability and to each according to their need, eating together regularly, generously serving neighbors and living quiet lives, living lives of quiet virtue and prayer. However, this kind of vibrant, life-giving church requires more not less time and energy from its members. It asks people to prioritize one another over our careers, to prioritize prayer and time reading scripture over our accomplishments. So then, what if the problem isn't that the church is asking too much of their members, but that they aren't asking nearly enough? This early church is so compelling, friends, because of their devotion, 
because of how much they were willing to invest in the truth of Jesus and the way of their community. And so can I be bold enough this evening to ask you and I for more? The way of Jesus compels us to more. And what I love as I was sitting preparing is that it's already begun. We are seeing the kind of, I don't for lack of a better word, just sort of like these shoots of this in our community where we are watching some of you who have not grown up in community or have been the lonely or the isolated or the without family or who've gotten used to church that's just about ideas. And for the first time you are experiencing people who will show up for you, people who will care for you. And I wanna commend you, Genesis, for the work that you are doing, not me, the work that you are doing to build a more beautiful, a more caring, a more loving group of Christians who are committed to one another, who are committed to their city, and who are committed to seeing the way of Jesus go forth. And I wanna say more more in the name of Jesus, more. We want to be a people that look different, that sound different, that are devoted as Jesus was. Not only, we're moving along. You with me still? You're quiet. You guys okay? If you don't know me, I have a little bit of passion. Hopefully it's not offensive. If it is, I'm sorry, uh, but there we go. Okay. And they devoted themselves not only to fellowship, but look what else it says. And they devoted themselves to a shared meal, to the breaking of bread. If you've been around with Genesis for a long time, the table has always been central to what we do. Pre-COVID, every single week, we ate a meal together. Every single week. It got a little crazy in this building and we couldn't do it as much um, for reasons of, lots of reasons. This is not our space. Anyways, but it's the reason we have this table every single Sunday, front and center. And I can't fully explain it, But there is truly something spiritual that takes place around a table when Christ is at the center. I don't know how it works, but throughout the narrative of scripture, eating together was a sign of God's kingdom being present. It's in Isaiah. There's a a moment, I don't think I put it up there, but it says, on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast. It was a sign of his provision. It was a sign of his promise. Think about um, Psalms, uh, what is it? Psalms 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The table was both from creation itself. It was this sacred activity, both in what it symbolically represented, but also in the way it demonstrated the sustaining power that God gave to us. Food is something we need physically, right? Right? but sharing it with others is something we need spiritually. And so this is intrinsic to the faith that we hold. Jesus, I I, I couldn't find the quote, but I've read it somewhere where it says, Jesus did everything on his way to a meal or at a meal itself. Everything was centered around this shared experience, this shared meal. And Jesus sat at that table with all kinds of people and he broke bread with insiders and outsiders and Jews and Gentiles and tax collectors and men and women and children and sex workers and fishermen and all kinds of people found themselves at the table of Jesus and they were known and they were seen and they were loved. And when it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, that's what they are talking about. 
The early church held this practice because Jesus held this practice, because it mattered to him. And so you and I, in the same way, we continue this practice. We continue this this, uh, routine or rhythm of our life because Jesus invites us to. This is the power of Christ on display. I can never get over the fact that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't teach in remembrance of me and teaching is so good. Don't pray in remembrance of me and we need to pray. No, break bread, sit around a table and experience the love of Christ. And as you do, do it in remembrance of me. And a shared community knows how to do this well. Shared life, shared food, shared time, shared money. And if that sounds crazy, it is crazy. Our culture and our times do not live this way. But friends, I would argue that a church that looks and lives like the culture has no business existing. If we don't live differently, if we don't operate differently, if we don't show the way of Jesus that is different from the way of everything else, then we are not what he called us to be, devoted to one another. Finally, they were devoted to prayer. This one hit me this week. They were devoted to prayer. So they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have Spotify's top, you know, 100 best worship songs. And many would leave Jerusalem after they had heard the news. And so they might even lose community. They might have left on their own as the only person they knew who knew Jesus. So what did they have? Prayer. They had an understanding of how to communicate and commune with God. They understood that it was so vital that they speak to him and hear him speak back. And so the early church devoted themselves to the practice and daily ritual of dedicating time to be in prayer. Prayer was perhaps for these early believers the single most central and transformative practice they had. They could do it anywhere, at any time, in any season of the soul. And so prayer would have been this constant companion. One of the historians I read this week spoke about how Christianity was attracted in its earliest days, kind of a lot of the social outcasts. So most of the converts, as we saw with... um, Timothy were women, were slaves, were people who were not valued by society. So think about someone who is enslaved, whose time is not their own, who can't go to church, who can't meet with people, who is isolated, working somewhere. What did they have? Prayer. They had through the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to talk to God and know that he heard them the ability to sit in the quiet hours of loneliness and isolation and believe that God was hearing them and he was speaking back. But for many of us, I would say this is possibly the most, the hardest devotion of them all. Nothing about our modern life equips us for prayer. We live fast, we live busy, we live noisy, we live with instant gratification 
gratification. I want what I want and I want it now. And so we can be really good at kind of throwing up, you know, Lord, can you just fix this? And God is so gracious and he hears us. But I wanna invite you and I into a different kind of prayer, a prayer that actually transforms our lives. A prayer that is not just about kind of throwing up a request, but a prayer life that is about communing with God. Richard Foster, who wrote uh, Spiritual Disciplines, a book on spiritual disciplines, he says this, I think I have the quote, real prayer is life creating and life changing. It lies at the root of all personal godliness. Quite simply, to pray is to change. To pray is to change. And so they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, as I kind of come into land, here's what's helpful about prayer. Is that in the New Testament, we are given the example that prayer is something we can learn. The disciples of Jesus in Luke 11 say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Now remember, these were Jews. They would have prayed their whole life. So why did they go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray? Well, there was something so different about the way that Jesus engaged with prayer. There was something so different about the relationship that he had with the Father that he would go off, it said early in the morning, Jesus would go into the lonely places and there he would pray. And the disciples saw that and they said, whatever we know of prayer is not that, teach us, teach us to pray. And I think for you and I, wherever we are on our journey, wherever we are spiritually, we can go and say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pray, but Jesus, won't you teach me? Won't you teach me how to talk to you? Won't you teach me how to commune with you? Won't you teach me how to be in your presence, speaking and hearing and speaking and hearing? Friends, prayer is a gift to us. Like it was then, so it is now. It can be done anywhere, at any time, on our own, with people. We can do it while we drive, while we cook, while we clean, while we wash dishes. We can do it on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Saturday. God is always present and we can always commune with him. The only thing in our way is sometimes our willingness to do so. Lord, teach me how to be devoted to prayer. All right, as we close, if you consider Genesis your community, if this is your home, if this is where you wanna be, I wanna invite you as I think the Spirit of God does in the book of Acts, I want to invite you to become devoted to these. Devoted to the way of Jesus, teaching, learning about him, devoted to fellowship and community, to share your life with others, to share your table with others, good and bad and really ugly. Stu and I lead a group and they have ministered to us just as much as we've ministered to them. These are people who know us who show up for us. I believe in this kind of community. And I am asking you to lean in, not because I want you to, but because it's the example that Jesus sets. Ask him to cultivate in you a holy kind of devotion. Jesus is inviting us. He never pushes, he never manipulates, he never twists our arm, but he invites us through the beauty of his scriptures to more. 
Jesus is saying to us tonight, I think, simply come, come and follow me. Learn again what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. Learn again what it looks like to be in fellowship and be in community. Learn what it feels like to sit across the table from someone and to share a meal and despite your differences, you hold everything in common. And finally, come and hear his voice in prayer. Learn what it sounds like. Learn what it feels like to commune with God. I wanna invite us or ask if we just take a moment I have two little kids and oftentimes the message ends and we go to the table and then all of a sudden I have like, there's only two of them. It feels like a thousand people yelling at me. And I think we can miss a moment to just honestly meditate on God's truth and ask him what he's highlighting. So are you guys okay for two more minutes? We often talk about uphill and downhill practices, the idea that some things are easier for us and some things are harder. And so I just want to invite you to take a minute. What feels hard? Maybe you are devoted to the word, but you really struggle with community. You really struggle to let people in. Maybe you love being with people, but you have a hard time being in the scriptures. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's the shared meal. Maybe you don't want to be known. Maybe you don't want to be seen. But Jesus is inviting you. Come. Come and follow me. Come and experience a life that is truly life. Come and experience a community that will meet your needs, people that will love on you and care for you and show up for you. And come and learn how to pray. So let's just take one minute. Just identify where is God calling you? 